is Patrick Modiano, the recent winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature. Alan Riding will join us to talk about Modiano and his new collection of novellas, Suspended Sentences. He goes back sometimes to the occupation itself, but very often to people who he met who maybe had some role, and he goes to investigate. Would it be any fun to live in the Victorian age or a total nightmare? Judith Newman will be here to talk about her review of Ruth Goodman's How to Be Victorian, a dawn-to-dusk guide to Victorian life. No sewage, tripling of the population. You can figure out what happened to human waste. This is Inside the New York Times Book Review. I'm Pamela Paul. Alan Riding joins us now from Paris. He is a former European cultural correspondent for The Times, and this week he reviews three newly translated novellas by the current Nobel Prize winner for literature, Patrick Modiano. The book is called Suspended Sentences. Hi, Alan. Hi there. So these books, uh, it's three novellas. They've just come out uh, from Yale University Press. Are the books related, the novellas? Are the stories intertwined, or do each stand on their own? Well, with Modiano, he, he's always said that essentially he keeps writing the same book. He said he's done so for the last 45 years. And so these three novellas, although written over a period of five years, uh, fit together very well, as do most of his books. He writes essentially about the German occupation of Paris between 1940 and 1944. But he wasn't born during that period. So in a sense, he spends most of his energy on, shall we say, excavating memories. But they're not his memories. They're the memories of that period. And particularly, he's really trying to find his own roots through the memories of his father. His father was a very dominant figure in his life, even though not very present. His father was a Jewish Italian um, who was living in Paris and found himself involved in quite a lot of shady operations of the black market and eventually was associated with one of the most vile French gangs that was associated with the Nazis, known as the gang of Rue Loriston, which was the road where they had their main office. And um, while this happened, of course, before Modiano was born, um, his father wasn't at all present during his childhood, and his mother was an actress and was always away. And so, in many ways, he had a sort of empty childhood, which he's been trying to fill through all his novels and his writing. Presumably, his father was, it was not known that he was Jewish at the time. Strangely enough, there were a number of Jewish people got involved in, shall we say, the black market and shady operations, and some of them were protected by the the fellow gangsters or whatever that they were involved with. He was arrested once, presumably. It's not entirely clear from Modiano's writings, presumably for being Jewish. However, he was released almost immediately through the intervention of one of these gang leaders. And so this is a subject that frequently comes up in his books in his different ways. He's constantly trying to excavate, as I I almost use the word again, that period to try and understand his father and everything that was going on at that time. So they're not his memories. Um, they're memories of memories, in a way. And in these books he's writing about, in these novellas, in one case he's writing about his childhood in, in the book called, the one that carries the title of the, uh, of the collection, Suspended Sentence. And he's talking about when he was only about 10 years old and was uh, lodged with some people because his parents were away, his mother was traveling as an actress, and he gradually, um, he's 
staying with his women outside Paris, he gradually, much later in his life, understands that these people were actually remnants of the gang that his father was associated with. He begins to hear as a child references to the Rue L'Oriston gang, which he didn't understand at the time, but only later made sense. So he goes back in this, in this novella to, in a sense, go over his childhood of this, of this period and trying to find the clues that he could only understand much later. When the Swedish, the Swedish Academy announced Patrick Modiano as the winner, they cited him for, um, and I'm quoting, for the art of memory with which he has evoked the most ungraspable human destinies and uncovered the life world of the occupation. Right now in Paris, there is an exhibit about the occupation, and I think with an emphasis on the collaboration are these two things coincidences that he won the Nobel Prize this year and that there's also this big exhibit uh, in Paris, or um, is there a moment going on in France right now? Well, um, no, it, it is a coincidence. The exhibition on collaboration has been, under, uh, been prepared for two or three years, so it's a very complicated research project of going into the archives. But what is interesting is that the whole question of the occupation after the liberation of France in 1944 and de Gaulle arrived, he more or less, in order to save French honor and also to ensure that France had a place at the top table as one of the four victorious powers, he more or less created the myth that most people in France were resistance and very few were collaborators. By the 70s, this, um, with de Gaulle himself no longer in power and in fact dead in 1971, the view began to swing to a different view that, in fact, there was a great deal of collaboration and it had all been hidden because people didn't want to talk about anything after the war. One way or the other, they were sick of it all. You had the swing from everyone was a resistance to everyone was a collaborator. And today now, there's a much more nuanced point of view, which is that, yes, there were certainly a number of collaborators, those who were genuinely enthusiastic about a Nazi-ruled Europe and those who were just going about shady business, um, there were a relatively small number of people who were in the resistance. And in fact, the great majority of people were really just trying to survive and waiting for some outside intervention, because it was quite clear the resistance was never going to win, waiting for the arrival of the Allies to sort things out. Now, the notion of this being a very sensitive subject is no longer really valid. There's a lot, um, a lot of exhibitions, a lot of films, a lot of programs on television about that period. And it's in fact, it's more discussed now than probably ever before. And not necessarily with the point of view of pointing fingers, because we're talking really now for a, a new generation and who are, of people who are really trying to find out exactly what did happen. Modiano's books, in a way, fit into this because he goes back, again, sometimes to the occupation itself, but very often to people who he met when he was in his teens, and his 20s, who maybe had some role, and he goes to investigate. He loves going through old newspapers. One of his books, one of the few that have been translated into English, is called Dora Bruca, and there he finds in a newspaper a little ad for a girl who's gone missing, a Jewish girl who's gone missing. And so he spends really the whole book trying to find out what happened, why she left the, the, the refuge of a convent where she was hiding, because a lot of the convents took in Jewish children and hid them during the occupation. But she left it suddenly, and, he, and, and it's again, uh, he has to speculate, and he has to go through the, f 
files and try just trying to find out. Eventually, of course, he does know that she is deported and, and dies in Auschwitz. So it's very often the sort of a struggle to, to come to terms with what could have happened. And he doesn't really know because he wasn't there, but um, he, is, he is evoking all of this period. He, he said, in fact, in his Nobel lecture that when he finishes a book, he feels, well, that's it. And when he starts a book, he realizes he hasn't finished the last one. And very often, some of the same characters, some of the same situations reappear, but they reappear in different ways. It's almost a bit like when you have a recurring dream, but the dream is never quite the same. And you may have some of the same characters, but they're doing different things. And this is what happens in his books. It sounds like the final novella in this collection, Flowers of Ruin, fits into that mode of a kind of literary detective story, a look back. Yes, well, in this particular story, he, he's through newspaper accounts, he finds out about a, a double suicide in 1933. So this is completely unrelated to the occupation. But when he begins to try to investigate what happened, where they were, what led to this double suicide, he again comes stumbling across other bits that are related to the occupation. It's sometimes like somebody who's sort of wondering, you know, the city is always very, very present. He, he writes, I often think that you need a map in a way when he's writing about the city to know which street he's talking about and which avenue he's going down. And in this case, you know, he meets people rather casually and then finds out more about them and they're somewhat mysterious. And in one of these characters, there's a man he meets who goes by one name but maybe had another name and maybe he was a collaborator, maybe he wasn't, maybe he died in Dachau in the concentration camp, but then he finds that his name appeared, that he was summoned to court after the war for, for being a collaborator, but then he disappears. So you're left really with, with all these flashes of images which come together because you do come out with a, a strong sense of having lived through another period and lived through other people's lives. You mentioned in your review that the narrator here seems inseparable from Modiano, the man. And it was just announced this week that um, Yale University Press is going to be bringing out Modiano's memoir next fall here. And it's already been published in France. Is there more to learn from the memoir or is it, is it all sort of contained within his fiction? Well, in a way, the, the, the memoir is a sort of mirror of the fiction or the fiction is a, mem- <laughs> a mirror of the memoir. Quite often there is somebody called Patrick, or um, the nickname, uh, as in, as in uh, Flowers of Ruin, one of the novellas. He goes by the nickname of Patoche, which is one of the nicknames of Patrick. Most of his books are written in the first person. You know, you're never entirely sure whether it is him or not him, or what part of him is, is speaking. It's a very shadowy narrative in many ways, but people get drawn back to it. You know, I think that very often when people write novels around, say, a, a detective, and you read ten novels about this detective, because you're wanting to go back into that world of his. And so it is with Modiano. You're going, you open the book, and you're going back into his world. For many people in America, the award of the Nobel Prize this year was the first time they'd ever heard of Patrick Modiano. Would you recommend these novellas as a place to start for someone who's never read Modiano, or would you go back to the earlier novels? I think these are a very good place to start. I think uh, Dora Bruker, the one I mentioned where he was looking for this uh, young Jewish girl who disappeared during the occupation, that, that is probably most accessible. But I think these three novellas are beautifully written and are as good a place as any to start. Um, his first novel, which he wrote um, 
when in his early 20s, is probably the most difficult, and it has not been published. It's called Place de l'Etoile, the place of the star. Now, the Place de l'Etoile is also actually where the Arc de Triomphe is, because it has so many roads going out of it, it's known as the Etoile. But the Place de l'Etoile, the place of the star, is also where the yellow Jewish star was on people's chests. So it's a, a word play he has. But that that book is a very difficult book. It's very it's rather surrealist in a way. I mean, it, it's about, again, a Jewish collaborator, but it, it goes in all sorts of different directions. And it's, I, I think that, frankly, these three novellas, to the extent that one can say is anything typical of him, but is a certainly a good way of discovering an author who is really, as you say, largely unknown in the United States. Well, I think that the decision is easier for Americans um, who don't speak French because La Place de l'Etoile has still not been translated into English. Unlike these three novellas, the book again is Suspended Sentences, three novellas by Patrick Modiano, this year's winner of the Nobel Prize for Literature. Alan Riding is a former European cultural correspondent for The Times, also the author of the book And the Show Went On, Cultural Life in Nazi-Occupied Paris. And this week he reviews Patrick Modiano's novellas in the book review. Alan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much. This is Parl Segel, an editor at The Book Review, and I'm joined by Alexandra Alter with news from publishing. Hi, Alexandra. Hi, Pearl. So I hear you have some news about a surprise bestseller this season. Yes. You know, at the end of the year, everyone's putting together their best books of the year list. And all fall, it seemed like among booksellers, there was this discussion of what's going to be the Goldfinch this year. Right. There were so many great books out, you know, Jane Smiley, Marilyn Robinson, David Mitchell. But there wasn't one book that mm. everyone was reading and everyone was talking about. And sometime around November, it started to emerge that there was one book, and booksellers started quickly selling out of it, and that is All the Light We Cannot See by Anthony Doerr. Which was on our top ten. Which was on our top ten, and it's you know set during World War II. It unfolds from the perspective of two children, a French girl who's blind, who sort of joins the resistance movement against the Nazis, and a German orphan who gets swept up in, in the Hitler youth movement. And their stories intersect at some point. But it became this book that seemed to resonate with, you know, men and women equally with young people because there were young characters in it and older people. The author and his publisher, Scribner, were taken completely by surprise. They had printed 60,000 mm-hmm. copies when the book came out in May. They were expecting his usual size audience of literary fiction lovers to come to it. And they've now been back to press 25 times. Oh, wow. There's 920,000 copies in print. And it's out of stock at Amazon right at the height of the holiday rush. Um, so they really weren't expecting that many people to read this book. And every bookseller I've talked to said, okay, this is The Goldfinch. We were just reordered. We just ran out. People are reserving them. People are clamoring for them. Well, so like The Goldfinch, there is this historical sweep, right? And like there are these characters that you identify with. And beyond that, what are your sort of intuitions about why this book is resonating with so many different people and it's different kinds of It's very interesting. You know, when I talked to the author who goes by Tony, he said, you know, I never thought this many people pick up this book. It's got trigonometric equations mm-hmm. in it. It's mm-hmm. about radio technology and science. And, you know, he has this very dense kind of almost Baroque mm-hmm. style. But when I was talking to, you know, fans and booksellers and, you know, having read it myself, I think it accomplishes a number of things that make it 
resonate with a lot of readers. One is, you know, it's this popular subject, World War II, that right, always, everyone, always popular. it's always popular with people who like historical fiction, people who like history. That generation who lived through war is sort of fading out, so mm-hmm. it's taking on this new resonance. So people can gravitate to that topic and feel like they're coming to it with a basic level of knowledge. Right. But it comes at that topic from an unfamiliar angle with these two young characters. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's not really a conventional war story where there's mm-hmm. not like, you know, the usual kind of you don't see Hitler, you know, giving speeches and there's not um, much of a depiction of trench warfare, although there is some violence. You don't really see the camps or anything like that. And there's a there's a mystery element. There's this um, precious jewel that could be cursed that's missing that the girl, okay. and her, you yeah. know, is protecting that someone's looking for. And then I think there are a couple of stylistic things that actually made it a really fast read, despite the density of his language. He alternates between their perspectives, the girl and the boy, and the chapters are very short, three to five pages, almost James Patterson short. (laughs) And something about that gives it this narrative drive, even though it's kind of a slow story and you sort of, it takes a while to get into it. You know, people that I talked to said I couldn't put it down. You mm. know, you get at the end of one chapter and you start another one. So I think that might have hit, that's what I've been hearing too. Yeah, like this freshness in the way that he sort of, you know, he's doing a historical novel, something we know and we love, and something even that the Goldfinch, right? Like there's a right. quest at the center, but there's this precious object. That's exactly you know? right. Yeah. But right, the treatment is just ever so slightly. That's different. exactly right. And, and something, you know, he used the present tense, which he was worried would confuse readers, but it adds an urgency to it. It really puts you there. And I think that helped too. And then, you know, I think one thing that really created this surge in the fall, even though the book has been out for eight months, and this is counterintuitive, but I, you know, I talked to his editor at Scribner, Nan Graham, and he was nominated for the National Book Award. He didn't win. And Scribner had run this old-fashioned campaign getting independent booksellers behind the book. They'd sent him to talk to them back in January. When he didn't win the National Book Award, Nan Graham said, listen, this is only going to sell more books for you because every bookseller in the country oh, is going to hold this book up and say, this is the book that should have won the National yeah, Book Award. Yeah. And sales tripled that week. Oh, wow. Right after that, it started landing on all the best of the year lists. So I think that also created the drive. And then, of course, you throw in the holidays yeah. and you've got suddenly a bestseller. And it's yeah. been on our list for 33 weeks consecutively. I it's think. interesting, yes. It's had the success, but it still feels like something that people are rooting, like a book people are rooting for exactly. and passing amongst themselves. Right. And it still seems to be like one of those great word of mouth right. book stories. Exactly. And for him, you know, he's had four other books and he's had excellent reviews. Usually um, he's won maybe 20 literary awards. So he's somebody that people have been following and rooting for mm-hmm. and independent booksellers have hope that been, he would break out. Exactly. In this way. Yeah. So he's got a lot of people in his court kind of rooting for him. All those factors converge, and suddenly we have what looks to be the best-selling literary fiction novel of 2014. Thanks so much, Alexandra. Thanks for having me. The always entertaining Judith Newman is here to talk about her review this week of what sounds like an inadvertently entertaining or perhaps deliberately entertaining book, How to Be a Victorian, A Dawn to Dusk Guide to Victorian Life by Ruth Goodman. Hi, Judith. Hi. I love the way that this book is organized. It truly is dawn to dusk. Right. The idea is to look at the Victorian life from the moment you stick your feet down on the very, very, very cold floor to the moment you actually retire at night. It's a very good organizing principle, I think. 
um, you say a lot of the book is, is really about how much effort it takes or took just to stay warm, clean, and fed. I know I've lived in London, and I'm granted it was about 20 years ago, but I felt like it was still awfully hard to stay. Oh, absolutely. And, and also, I, I did the same thing. I, I lived a year in London, and I just remember it was the year of just freezing to death, uh, as far as I was concerned. So there's still, there, there are certain elements of life and values that have really come over from the Victorian times. One of them is the value of coldness. <laughs> Not the value of the coldness so much, but the value of fresh air. Because when you lived as a Victorian, there were always coal fires going everywhere. And there was an idea, which wasn't entirely crazy, that, that you could suffocate and there were toxins in the air, which in a macro way was very, very true. It was There was so many coal fires going that the air was foggy. But in your own house, you didn't really need to have the windows open 24-7, yet that's what people did. So you would think, well, there's such a dichotomy between rich people and poor people that there, there would be a huge difference in comforts. And there were, but some of the things that we think of as important to our own comfort, whether you were rich or poor, it happened you were cold. Um, yeah, there were so many. Uh, there's so many sort of contrary notions. Going back to toxins, um, obviously the air was not clean. But one of the things that was toxic was the medicine. The medicine. If you wanted to be a recreational drug user, it was a good time to do that in a strange way because many of the medicines that we think of now as uh, that are in fact highly regulated were anything but at the time. They were in the most common prescriptions. There wasn't a lot of control, um, so drugs for both adults... Or a lot of knowledge, right? Or a lot I mean, of, yeah, right, exactly. I mean, at a time when antibiotics were just unavailable, there were lots of reasons to use drugs that would just get rid of pain, and one of the great pain relievers was opiates. So there was opiates in just about everything. I love that, uh, or I don't love, but I mean, it's just hard not to laugh uncomfortably at the fact that Mrs. Winslow's soothing syrup and its streets infant quietness. Infant quietness. And there contained what? Contained laudanum. Am I, am I pronouncing that right? Laudanum and opium. And, and here's the thing. There's much talk, of course, about the huge infant mortality rate during the Victorian era. But as Ruth Goodman points out, uh, and as researchers have found, maybe as many as a third of all children died simply from those kind of medications because a child who's got opiate in the system is a child who's not suckling, uh, who doesn't want to eat. And as she says, they slipped quietly away, these little wizened infants. So dreadful. But a lot of it, they kind of brought onto themselves. I mean, you talked about um, they not only thought that cold air in massive quantities, a constant stream was necessary for good health, but also that water was very detrimental. Well, there was this idea that there was a certain level of toxicity in things that we don't consider toxic. Indeed, in things that we do consider toxic, it wasn't considered that. But as far as cleanliness goes, it's it's inconceivable to us that we could go for months and months without taking a shower, without rinsing. But what Ruth Goodman did is she walked the walk of the Victorian life. She just doesn't talk the talk. So she would uh, take several months 
for example, and uh, decide not to use water. She would just scrub. She's like the A.J. Jacobs of the U.K. Yes, kind of, yes. Uh, full immersion journalism where she actually tried to live like a Victorian. She right? did. And there were even – this is the kind of reality show that goes over well in England that I'm, I'm not quite sure would go over well here. But, yes, she did a show called Victorian Farm and Victorian Pharmacy where for months at a time she would actually be living and doing very hard labor in a corset and hoop skirts, which, you know, she managed to set herself on fire one time doing this. And she she did all sorts of things. She There was a point where she realized she was much more comfortable in a very tight corset because once that corset was taken off, her muscles had kind of atrophied a little bit and it was hard to just walk upright. Um, I hope the pharmacy part has me worried. She didn't take any tonics with mercury in it that uh, they they took at the time. I think she probably avoided doing that. But it was interesting to learn how – I mean, we worry about food additives now. But imagine if your food additive uh, to make certain foods like wine or cider sweet was lead. Because it was. I mean, we wonder why babies lick walls and why that was a huge danger. Well, lead has a sweetness to it. That was used. uh, Certain kinds of chalk were used to whiten bread. Things we think of as poison now were common additives in a lot of food. And things that we don't think of as poison, like water, actually were, in fact, poisonous to some degree, right? Because the Thames, for example, was, was just full of raw sewage. There was a, a point that at that time where that's exactly what happened. I mean, imagine the population during Victoria's reign tripled and there was no sewage system. Until so, 1858. Right. So you no sewage, tripling of, of, of the population you can figure out what happened to human waste. In fact, one of the things I remember even from 25 years ago, I always wondered, why in God's name does English toilet paper, is it like wax paper? It's it's awful. And it turns out that was kind of a remnant of the Victorian times because it was medicated. Because, you know, as our waste treatment goes, so goes the population. And uh, th- there was actually very good reason to think that, that, that toilet paper needed to be medicated at the time, but not that it worked terribly well. So we are all uh, readers here, readers of great Victorian literature. Was there anything that you found in this book that sort of made Charles Dickens's novel sort of make more sense or come alive in a particular way? Oh, much more sense because I was thinking that those wonderful hearth scenes and those scenes of great bounty, they have an extra significance when you consider, for one thing, how cold everybody was. So you're you're not just with your family gathered around the hearth. It's a time of, of not just figurative warmth, but literal warmth. And that makes such a huge difference in people's lives. And I I think it's the same with food. I mean, remember that the Irish potato famine did not just affect people in Ireland. Uh, If you were poor, there was an excellent chance that you were on the verge of starvation for for many years in certain parts of the country. In fact, Goodman talks about a, uh, a, they, they, they looked at the heights of criminals. And of course, criminals mostly came from the poorer working classes. And there was a difference of several inches in the height of the average person uh, arrested for a crime versus the average person who wasn't or the average wealthier person. You have to do a lot of starving in order to to be several inches shorter. And that's it's interesting because right now, apparently, all across England, there is uh, a sudden realization that 
uh, much of the population is underfed because there's so much poverty out in the countryside in England. Despite the insane luxury of um, of London these days, was there for you reading this like a particular sort of horror that stood out? I think there were many horrors that stood out. Um, That's part of the thrill of the book. I say there's a shudder on every page. And there's one point where Goodman, who's an excellent seamstress and and obviously an excellent do-it-yourself person in, in a thousand ways, tries to make the kind of condoms that were popular at the time. And she's sitting there apparently boiling sheep gut and, and, and getting the, the little bits of string out of it. And even she gave up on the condoms, I'm, I'm very Not relieved to say. Not as fun as it sounds. <laughs> Not Victorian not condoms. Not as fun as it sounds. <laughs> so she never made an effective or ineffective Victorian condom. Apparently not. Apparently not. Nor did she ever really quite get used to recyclable sanitary napkins, although she tried. She's much less squeamish than the average person today, as were probably the Victorians. What about Anything that uh, you thought, well, that doesn't sound so terrible, or I wish we could be like the Victorians in in one way. Was there nothing good about living in Victorian England? While it doesn't fit my very romanticized notions of uh, Victorian life, I can't escape from the sense that there's something wonderful about a big chasm between public life and private life. We live in such a a vulgar culture, as I say, you know, we sit there and there's a show called Dating Naked and nobody tunes in because like, who cares about a bunch of naked people on a first date? That's the culture we live in. And I like the fact that there was a great difference between private and public behavior. That will forever appeal to me, even if that had certain ramifications I probably wouldn't like when I look, if I look at it carefully. All right. Before you escape from this studio, I have to ask you uh, to tell listeners about your Victorian nightgown. Oh, I I should have just worn it into the studio. Uh, My husband kept bringing these gowns You've got a British husband. I have a British husband, uh, and I have uh, more than that, an old British husband. So uh, our house is perpetually freezing. Also, the the kind of things that he finds romantic are what I consider shrouds. He brought back these Victorian... What's the sexy number he brought back? Head to toe, covered really up um, just about from my jawbone to my ankle, pure white, incredibly stiff cotton. Actually from the Victorian age? Yes, because... A, they keep things, and that's how good the cotton is. That they they are just like that. But it really is something I've just decided. Hopefully, it'll it'll look good in my coffin. But that's about its best use at this point. Next time, Judith will wear it when she comes in. Thanks, Judith, so much. Thank you so much for having me. The book again is How to Be a Victorian: A Dawn to Dusk Guide to Victorian Life by Ruth Goodman. Reviewed this week in the Book Review by Judith Newman. John Williams is here with Bestseller News. Hi, John. Hey, Pearl. Um, I'm filling in for our colleague Greg Coles this week, who's out for the holidays. And um, it's a good week to fill in, or it's an, a not onerous week to fill in, because there's literally not a single <laughs> change on any of the hardcover lists, or you know, no new books on the lists. You spoke to Alexandra Alter earlier in the podcast, and she was talking about Anthony Doerr's All the Light We Cannot See. Um, that remains on the hardcover fiction list at number four. The other sort of really long-standing book on the hardcover fiction list is... Last year's big hit, which Alexander also spoke about, The Goldfinch by Donna Tartt. And that's hanging on at number 11 after 56 weeks on the list. And as Greg writes in an upcoming column, 
you know, when that happens, publishers tend to hold off on publishing a paperback because they're still making good money on the hardcover and sales don't seem to be declining. So for people waiting for the Goldfinch to come out in paper, it seems like it's going to be a while longer until mm -hmm. that happens. And as for changes on the list, I think we're going to have to wait till January to see what 2015 brings in terms of fresh blood. Thanks so much, John. Thanks, Pearl. Remember, there's more at nytimes.com slash books. Our producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez, and you can always write to us at books at nytimes.com. Thanks for listening. For The New York Times, I'm Pamela Paul.